you know, when I was growing up, um, my mom was like really, really concerned with uh, the types of things that I was consuming. Not, not the food so much, but the kind of television that I watched. Uh, she was always the one to check the rating on the back of the movie as I selected it from Blockbuster, you know? Uh, but the, probably the most annoying part to me was uh, how she was just unafraid to police the kind of music that I was listening to. She wasn't afraid to go in my room when I wasn't home and take out my CDs, look through them, and confiscate the ones that she decided were a bad influence on me. And so a couple of years ago, I was back home, and we were driving around in, in her car, and she was listening to the same soft rock radio station that she's been listening to for my entire life, B101. And a song came on, and she started singing along to it. And on the inside, I just died a little bit. It's kind of starting to seethe with teenage rage again. And I turned to her and I said, I had this CD and you took it away from me. <laughs> right? But she was always just like wanting me to, to fill myself with, with the good stuff. You know, she wanted me to read the Bible. I didn't want to read the Bible. But 30-something me is now kind of mad at 16-year-old me because if I had known what was in the Bible... I would have had some words to say to her when she went and said that things in the world weren't good for me to know about. See, the Bible is scandalous. It's got some stuff in there that you don't read to your children before they go to bed at night. There's so many stories that just like blow my mind when I read them. I can't believe that they're, they're in the Bible. And the, the story that we're going to talk about today is one of those stories. It's got a plot line that more resembles like an HBO or a Showtime special than a VeggieTales episode. And uh, it comes from the, the book of Hosea. He's, he's one of the minor prophets kind of towards the end of the Old Testament. And it, it starts out like this. It says, the word of the Lord came to Hosea son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. So where we're at in history is like uh, the 8th century BC, about 700 or so years before uh, Jesus came. And uh, this is during a period of time where Israel is, is a divided monarchy. There's actually two nations, and the one called Israel is in the north, and the one called Judah is in the south. So a few weeks ago, we talked about Judah and, and how the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem and, and carried them out into uh, exile. So today we're going to be in the northern kingdom, in Israel. This is where Hosea lived. And it's a few hundred years earlier. <clears throat> and the king there is Jeroboam. And this is what uh, the book of 2 Kings tells us about him. It says this, in the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which, he had, which had caused Israel to commit sins. So he's not a good king. And Israel is not following God. 
And so here's where the, the scandalous story came in. I know I just kind of told you a bunch of history, and it was like those three paragraphs that they make you read before the beginning of a Star Wars movie. But remember one thing out of all of that. Samaria is the capital of Israel, this northern kingdom. And so Hosea's prophecy goes on like this. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So you can kind of see what's going on here. You know, prophets were these people who uh, shared like the, the heart and the emotions of God. And, and for Hosea, God is like, hey, I want you to know exactly how I feel. Exactly how I see my relationship with your people, Israel. So he says, hey, Hosea, go on. Go out there and marry a woman who's got a reputation for being unfaithful. Because that's who Israel is to me. And Hosea marries this woman, Gomer, and she actually has three children. And God tells him to name them really awful things. The first son is named Jezreel. And he says, it's because you're going to lose a battle in Jezreel. Then name your daughter Lo-Ruahama, which means not loved. And your final son, Lo-Ami, not my people. So, so Jose is not just feeling what God feels. He's actually living it out. And to be honest, if the story ended up right here, it would look really bad for Israel. And I'll be the first to admit that it doesn't really look very good for God. It looks as if he's not only declared judgment on these people, but he's actually going to abandon them. However, what we know about the practices and the culture of this northern country of Israel shows us that they're worshiping other gods. And they have pretty much abandoned the ways of their God, their Yahweh. And so the story goes on like this, and we'll pick it up in Hosea chapter 3. And he says, The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. See, it appears that Gomer has gone out and either cheated on Hosea and shacked up with another man, or perhaps even more likely, depending on the, the translation that we use, uh, she's gone and, and sold herself into kind of a slave relationship with another man. And so the character of Gomer is becoming much more clear. You see, in chapter one, she was just kind of a person who had a past. Easy to overlook for us because, I mean, who doesn't? She had a reputation for being on the naughty list, you know, not just like the Friday and Saturday night, a little bit naughty list, but like the naughty all the time list. But Hosea looks past that, takes her as his wife, and like redeems her status in society. And she leaves. Just like Israel has been rescued by God from Egypt, 
and goes on and leaves and worships other gods. Essentially, Israel is this woman, Gomer. But we also get a clearer picture of the character of Hosea. And this is, this is what happens next. Hosea says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about an omer and a lethek of barley. And then I told her, You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will behave the same way towards you. You know, he takes this wife who undoubtedly everyone warned him against. And when she leaves and gets herself into trouble, instead of saying good riddance, instead of washing his hands, he goes and he gets her back. And when he does, he's got to pay roughly the cost of what it would cost to buy a slave out of slavery. The slavery that she has sold herself into. While everyone was probably telling him, hey man, you kind of got lucky. Like, why don't you just go on, move on with your life, put the past in the past, and get going. Hosea puts himself out there, and he brings her back into his life, back into his home. But there's a period of waiting. They're not going to be intimate with one another for a certain period of time. And the reason for this is explained a little bit more in the next few verses. God says, for the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord into his blessings in the last days. You see, Israel too, like Gomer, is going to have a waiting period before they can really have an intimate relationship with God again. They're going to have to spend a lot of days without a king, a king being the symbol of God's reign on earth. They won't be able to make sacrifices to Yahweh or to any other god. They're going to have to come off of their idolatry. But eventually they will come and they will seek God and they will seek the king to come from the line of David. You see, while Gomer got her redemption quickly within her lifetime, the same can't be said for Israel. See, not long after Hosea's prophecy, the Assyrian Empire came in in 722 BC and utterly destroyed the northern kingdom. And Assyria was a brutal nation, far more brutal than the Babylonians. They were known for not only conquering people, but also making it a point to annihilate their culture and their religious practices. Israel and its capital, Samaria, become just a lost memory. A warning and a case study to the Judeans in the south of what happens to people who are unfaithful to God. But as we know, Judah doesn't learn the lesson either. And as they face the Babylonians and are carted off into exile, the Babylonians also conquer the Assyrians. And then the Persians come in. And the Persians allow the people of Judah to go home. And in the, the period of time between when the Judeans get back to Jerusalem 
And when Jesus shows up, the fate of the lost 10 tribes of Israel to the north is debated and dreamed about. You see, eventually there are people living in that land again. But those people don't have the same Jewish culture as the people in the south. They don't worship God the same way. They don't believe all of the same things. And so there's tension. See, when Jesus is born, he comes into a world where God's people are divided. No longer as Judah and Israel, but now as Jews and Samaritans. And when I think of this social situation that's happening a few thousand years ago between two sets of folks, one who believe that they're God's people and that others are not, I can't help but feel like we're not 2,000 years and a few thousand miles away from it. I feel like this is still who we are. Now we just call ourselves different names. Instead of Jews and Samaritans, we're Christians and non-Christians, and Protestants and Catholics, Baptists and Methodists, or like my really, really least favorite one, Methodists and Methodists. You see, the politics of alienation aren't something that's new. They certainly haven't died with the ancient empires. They haven't gone away with the dawning of the information age. The high interconnectedness that we now have hasn't helped us connect and see each other better or understand each other at all. We still live in a world where God is used to separate us rather than unite us. And still, we come together in December every year and we worship the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ child, Emmanuel, God with us, a man who walked and talked and taught a new ethic, a new way of relating to one another, a new way to reach out across the God-sized chasm that humans have created amongst themselves. He closed the gap between God and us. And while he was on this earth, while the rest of the Jewish people and his disciples included were busy feeling some type of way about their half-breed heretic brothers and sisters in the north, Jesus one day decided to take a shortcut through Samaria. And in the heat of the day, he went to a well where he encountered another marginalized woman from Samaria. Another woman from the northern kingdom who had a reputation for being naughty. And in the midst of this boundary-breaking, culturally and socially taboo interaction, Jesus shared with her the message of his kingdom. And this woman left transformed. She headed back to her town and she told everyone what she had, ex- had experienced. And the response was this. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more came, became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior 
of the world. You see, Jesus came to seek out and save, to seek out and rescue those who were lost. But Jesus also came to fulfill promises that God had made many, many years earlier. But the work was not quite done yet. A few more years later, after Jesus was crucified and his disciples were out building the church, they came to Samaria. And in Acts 8, Peter and John lay hands on the people of Samaria and they received the Holy Spirit. And this is why this is so important. Why Jesus' pit stop in Samaria and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on them matters. Jesus' ministry reminded the Samaritans of a promise that was made to them. A promise that the Assyrian Empire had tried to eradicate from their memory. There was a king, a king like David, whom they could trust in, a king who would save them. In the coming of the Holy Spirit, the person of God who binds all believers together and binds them to God has come upon them. And finally, God's words to the prophet Hosea have come true. You see, right after God tells Hosea to name his last children, not my people, he says this. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. You see, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And finally, Finally, Israel has been vindicated. Finally, the waiting is over. They can have an intimate relationship with God again. They can worship. They have a king. They have been given hope. But keep in mind that 800 years has passed. And yet God has remained faithful. He has rescued them. He has brought them out of bondage and slavery. The bondage and slavery that they were put in physically by Assyria. And he has released them from the spiritual bondage that was placed on them for years of idolatry and a bitter rivalry between them and their brothers and sisters in the south. See, the nation of Israel, again, is united under the leadership of a king. It's united under the leadership of Jesus. And all of this is just one of the many illustrations of what God's love actually looks like. In Hosea's case, we, we have a man who is practically living out God's heart. He loves a woman despite her flaws. He rescues her from the consequences of her own actions because his love is faithful. And God pledges that, the, that same love to Israel and he personally comes to rescue them in Jesus. You see, God's love isn't just a feeling or some words on a page. God's love is a love that rescues. You know, when Jesus was here, he walked around and he proclaimed, repent, for the kingdom of heaven draws near. But that's not all that he did. You see, while he proclaimed uh, a ministry of repentance, he went from town to town. 
healing those who had physical and spiritual states that left them on the outskirts of society. He didn't say, stop sinning and I will heal you. He healed people and he said, go and sin no more. You see, God's love walked among us in the person of Jesus. That love rescued Israel. That love rescued marginalized individuals. And that love still walks among us today and rescues you and me. But God's rescue mission for Israel was not completed by Jesus. It was completed by his disciples, Peter and John. You see, Peter and John were like anyone in those times. They were good Jewish boys. And I wouldn't be surprised if they had particularly bad feelings for the people up north in Samaria. But they also had a strong belief in their heart, a belief that no one, absolutely no one, is outside of the love of God. You see, they had walked with Jesus and they had witnessed his cosmic acts of love. They had listened to his teachings about the upside down nature of his kingdom and how God desired to rescue all of the descendants of Adam from our sin. How he had overturned the negative consequences of social sin. And so they went. They went to the outcasts, they went to Samaria. And they walked among the Samaritans. And they became agents of God's rescuing love. And so let me ask you this. How are we as a church, how are you as an individual living a life of love that rescues? And I'm not talking about first aid love. We are, we're really, really good at that here. And, and honestly, it makes me proud to be a part of this community. We see a need and we fill it. We show up. We show up for kids. We show up for people in our community who are in need. But do we rescue them? You see, when a hiker or a climber is out in the wilderness and they get injured, and they're unable to get themselves to safety, a rescue team comes in and comes to their aid. And the first thing that happens is they're evaluated. First aid is administered. But then they're, they're prepared for transfer, transport out to safety into a facility that can perform more sophisticated medical treatment. We wouldn't dream of actually living in a world where a, first, a rescue team goes in bandages someone up and leaves them in the wilderness to figure it out for themselves. We would call that irresponsible. I think it's actually illegal. So why do we do that as Christians? Why do we just helicopter in, wrap some bandages on people and tell them to have a nice day? God bless you. What would it look like if we took the extra time to invest in people, to harness them, to medevac them out of their situation, to nurture them back to health, to get them in a place with people who can help them? What if we left them in a better situation 
than the one that we found them in. Because that is what love that rescue does. You see, everyone needs rescuing in some way. And love that rescues invests time, it invests effort, it invests resources. It invests in completing God's mission and promise to all people to seek out and save the lost. See, when we as Christians love in this way, we show the world that while love walked among us 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ, that love still walks among us today. In fact, the the final words of Matthew's gospel are Jesus saying, I am with you until the end of the age. And I think that's very telling. Matthew wanted us to know that that same love that walked with him and the disciples walks with us too. And that love empowers us to love like people who are agents of God's rescue mission to the world around us. So this week, while you celebrate the coming of the Christ child into this world, the coming of our savior, our rescuer, I challenge you to think of one person in your life, one person in your community who needs rescuing, someone who maybe you already help, but someone who needs a higher level of care than you give them. Start remembering them in your prayers and ask God to guide you and show you how to rescue that person. You see, a church, a a people who love this way will create a world where Christ's love walks among us. We'll create a world where Christ's love reigns supreme.